I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 29, Mallory and the Mystery Diary. Dun dun dun. Shall I go first with my one sentence summary? Sure. Esme's like laughing in silence right now. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> okay, my summary is Mallory teaches Buddy to read by enlisting his assistant solving a hundred year old quote unquote crime (laughs) (laughs) we know the babysitters love crimes so many crimes wow well they love catching criminals they're very good liberal citizens (laughs) (laughs) um so my one sentence summary is mallory is emo (laughs) that's so good (laughs) you liar you said you're sucked (laughs) i don't know (laughs) all right mine is mallory finds a 100 year old diary and becomes obsessed with solving a burglary while teaching buddy barrett to love reading nice a little more this was is a little bit more descriptive yeah thank you no problem you really tied all the plot lines together (laughs) yeah Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, We should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. I still can't say it. (laughs) And I'm Annie Chicala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. This week, I want to put in a special plug for our bookshop. So uh, many people try not to use the Jeff Bezos giant warehouse store during this difficult time. And so if you want to get your books someplace else from a local independent bookstore and also support our podcast at the same time, you can do that if you go to bookshop dot org slash shop slash stuck in stony brook and um i've been updating it a lot lately since this is a mallory book mallory talks about a lot of different books it's a mallory book where she's teaching buddy reading so a lot of different classic children's books comes up basically anytime one of the bsc mentions a book if it's still in print it's up on our bookshop we have a category for books mentioned by the babysitters we also have a category for books mentioned on the podcast so if you liked our episode last week with robin benway um, we have a bunch of her books up there um, melissa Walker, another author we've had on, as well as, you know, all of Emily's leftist revolutionary books are all listed as well. So what a collection um, of texts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the BSC graphic novels, a new one's coming out February 2nd, Claudia and the New Girl graphic novels coming out. So that'll be up there as soon as it's available for pre-order, as well as uh, the reissues of the regular BSC books. So if you want to buy any of those kinds of things, you can help us out bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. So Anne, why don't you start us off today with, you know, what, what you found interesting in Mallory and the Mystery Diary? 
I mean, I know this is unexpected for our listeners that I'm going first. <laughs> so, so I hope just, you, you know, know, just mix it up. Yeah. Up. Variety well, is the spice of life. As they say. Yeah. yeah. I can't so, wait for one of the babysitters to say that. It's going to happen at some point, right? Who do you think is going to say it? Claudia. I was just going to say Claudia. Yeah. <laughs> Not because you just said it, and <laughs> Uh-huh. Whatever, Emily. <laughs> it's like a folksy Claudia yeah. thing to say, I think. Yeah. It goes along with, oh, my Lord. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life. <laughs> I think we need to make a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this mystery diary. So quickly, let's talk about how this was found. So as we know, Stacy moved back. She moved back to Stony Brook, and she lives in the house behind the Pikes, which formerly was, uh, it was like those four, the French couple. Yeah, right. <laughs> that the Pikes thought the spies. were communist, communist yeah. spies <laughs> right. or something. Who were going to cook cook courgettes which i think they thought were like babies or something right right yeah. they're not, so, not babies yeah so newly divorced uh mrs mcgill i don't know if she's gonna go by mrs or what's her you know what's her maiden name we don't uh, we don't know i bet she'll keep it to keep the same last name as stacy stacy yeah not just because that's what emily's mom did but also because i just think <laughs> mrs mcgill would do that yeah we're stretching really far today for our yeah. <laughs> analysis of this book. <laughs> so they move into this big old house and uh, there's an attic. Mm-hmm. So they decide to explore it and they find a trunk. And, and there is Stacy and, and, and Claudia. Claudia. Yeah. So, of course, I mean, finding a locked trunk in an attic is pretty exciting, I would say. Yeah. Right? I think this this book, there's also, this is really random, but there's like a Sesame Street picture book called What's in the Attic with Bert and Ernie where it's a rainy day and they go explore an attic and they find all kinds of really cool things in a trunk in it as well. Um and I think those two books are responsible for me believing that this is a really good activity and continually being, being disappointed that there's not enough cool stuff in whatever attic or basement I happen to be looking at. But it is really exciting. Emily looks very confused and well, feels like she has no idea what Esme is talking about. I'm just like, how often do you really have an opportunity to like explore an attic or whatever attic or basement you happen to be in? <laughs> like, how often are you in attics or basements? <laughs> I guess, I guess I had both in my house growing up, and they looked yeah. like they would be promising. They had junk in them, but yeah, nothing this cool. So mm-hmm. I think every once in a while, maybe once a year or a couple years, I would be like, oh, that's a thing I should do, and then I would be disappointed. I'm still <laughs> unclear about how Mallory ends up with the trunk. Or why, rather? It's because Claudia had too much stuff. And I guess Stacey and her mom wanted it out of there so they could store their moving boxes. Right. Hmm. Okay. And I also, they enlist the triplets to like get it out of the attic, Mm -hmm. which I found like, are they strong enough? Or like, do three three small boys, men equal one strong man? I don't know. (laughs) They play real little league. They play real little league. And they're 10 at this point. Oh, they're 10. But still, I don't know. I feel like they could have done it. I feel like Claudia, Stacy, and Mallory are stronger than three yeah. nine-year-old boys. A hundred percent. So yeah. yeah. Anyway. So Mallory gets the trunk and they end up but they break the lock. They open it up and they find 
it's like the the belongings of a girl named Sophie. Mm-hmm. And there's like a bunch of like, you know, clothes in there and there's a diary in there. And Mallory becomes obsessed with this girl. It's from 1894. It's when the the first diary entry is January 1st, 1894. And, you know, it's just kind of like this girl talks. She's 12 also, right? Yeah, she's 12. And Mallory's only 11, though. But Mallory cannot wait to be 12. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Technically, she can't wait to be 13. Right. That's true. But you have to be 12 first, so. (laughs) (laughs) And... So this this kind of like mystery starts to develop in, in the diary entries where uh, Sophie's mom dies uh, in childbirth and her grandfather, who is very wealthy, um, and later we find out is uh, old, old Man Hickory. Is that mm-hmm. what it was? Yeah. And uh, he's like a, a Stony Brook legend, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else happens? As we take it from here, because I'm tired and I can't. You forget. It's too complicated of a plot. I just had this experience where even though I read the book this morning, I was listening to you tell the story like, oh, this is a nice story. (laughs) Okay. So can we do, can we just make an admission here that all of us like cram to read this book? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To the point. read it more than 12 hours ago. Yeah. To the point where. Esme FaceTimed me at like 10.30 last night to keep her accountable for reading the book. <laughs> I was really sleepy. And I was like <laughs> starting to fall asleep while I was finishing it. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so what happens is this portrait of Sophie's mom, who's old man Hickory's daughter, disappears from his house. And he um, accuses her dad, who he never liked, of stealing it. And he writes her dad and Sophie and Edgar out of the will. Edgar's the baby that was born when the mom died. Um, And then Sophie in the diary is convinced that her dad didn't do it. And she wants to like clear his name. And she specifically says, if we don't clear his name, I'm going to be haunting this property forever or something like that. Like our spirits won't be able to rest. Okay. As we're trying yeah. to explain the plot, it's like, I feel like we're not doing a good job. So I'm sorry <laughs> to our listeners. We're like, and then this happened. And then this other yeah. person came along it's and this happened. It is more complicated. Turns out. Yeah. Okay. So well, that's the 1894 timeline <laughs> in 1989. Right. <laughs> yeah. In 1989, Buddy Barrett can't read, but <laughs> We'll get to that in a minute. So basically, that's what happens. And then they uh, try to, they're trying to figure this out and trying to solve the mystery through various means. They have a seance. They're like looking for other clues. They're trying to learn more about Old Hickory. And then finally, at the climax, they actually, because of some tips from Charlotte Johansson, they find Slash Buddy Barrett. Slash Buddy Barrett, <laughs> who's getting to Encyclopedia of Brown, um, they find a painting in Stacy's attic that has been painted over. Mallory finds it because it's a painting of ships, but in the corner she sees a finger. And then Stacy's mom offers to take it to an art restorer and pay to see what's underneath, which I'm sure must have cost a lot of money. Um, and then it turns, it's a beautiful painting of a beautiful woman. And so they assume that it's Sophie's mother. So many things had to line up for that to work out. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Yeah. Okay, so that's that's the plot. <laughs> that's the longest plot summary we've ever done. Yeah, we've been recording for 12 minutes. <laughs> um, but before I get into this, you know, Emily's stuff and Esme's stuff, um, I'm just gonna make a quick comment about my one uh observation of this mm-hmm. book. Crime court. Crime court. <laughs> I don't know what Crime Court is. I, Charlotte I, Johansson's show. That no, I know, but I was wondering whether it was real or a made-up thing. Well, Crime Court itself is not a real show, but it's, it's like a phenomenon of the 80s where there were all these like court shows. So mm-hmm. are you familiar? I mean, I guess Emily would know more about Judge Judy. Uh, the only reason I know Judge Judy is because of Aunt Mill. Yeah. My aunt really likes Judge Judy. Like, likes Judy. currently still yeah, actively likes love, yeah. loves her yeah so emily's mom really likes dennis quaid and <laughs> your aunt millicent loves judge judy yep okay okay so i was thinking back to you know like our our after school routine i feel in the 80s often involves some sort of court show <laughs> and really? it's not yeah, I mean, it was on, I would say, like, it was either on in the morning, like, between, I would say, 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Yeah, definitely or a homesick from school show, for It was sure. a homesick from school, but it was also often, like, around between 3 and 4, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe it was just, it re- like, what came on twice a day or something. Mm-hmm. But the show, Esme and I watched the most, was The People's Court. Yes. With Judge Wapner. Yes. I mean, this guy is like embedded into my like everlasting memory and just his voice and everything. So it is um, it's the second highest ranked courtroom series in history. Oh, did Judge Judy beat him? What? No. Can you guess the first one? What's the number one? No, (laughs) I don't think I can remember it. It was mad when you tell me. Divorce court. Oh, of course. Of course, divorce court. Yeah. Could have talked about that last week, too. I know. Yeah. So divorce court was number one. People's court is number two. And then Judge Judy is number three. Okay. I feel like there was another general court show other than People's Court. Wasn't there kind of more a more low-rent version, too, around the same time? You know, I thought so, too. I was looking for it. Um, I couldn't find it, though. Okay. Maybe I was just thinking of divorce court and that was less interesting to me as a child because it was always about divorce. Right. But it, it kind of has like, it's funny because Charlotte Johansson liked it. Mm-hmm. And then like, but we also watched it as yeah. No, we are Charlotte in this situation. We were the same age. So, but like, why do young children like, <laughs> like court, court TV shows? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's all young children. I think it's precocious <laughs> children. I'll, I'll use Charlotte's uh, enthusiasm for crime court to to decide that you and I were also very precocious and smart. <laughs> That's why. We're right. Like, also, like other stuff was not on TV in the eighties. Like that was what was on. Like I feel right. like a lot of my TV choices I watched because they were on, and like television was better than not television. Right. And <laughs> TV is better than no TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. We just watched whatever was on. Yeah. So then you got also People's Court had the best theme song of almost any show, except maybe Night Court, which they have in common, even though they're very different shows. So good. So as we like scripted court shows and also reality court shows, (laughs) that's what we've learned. Yeah. (laughs) It does have a great 
theme song. And if only we could somehow find this theme song and play it. Roll it, Emily. What do you think? Well, I wish everyone could have seen you both dancing to that tune, which was a sight very special indeed. <laughs> had a, so, so a kind of seventies like detective vibe to it. Mm-hmm. I pictured a couple suited, well suited cops in Miami. Ah. <laughs> 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 so good so exciting what a a treat (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can see how it made you know like civil suits very exciting it was this for like my neighbor destroyed my fence type stuff sure yeah yeah i feel like a lot of it was you owe me money yeah (laughs) for sure um interesting tidbit ed ed koch was uh on the show as a judge from let's see 1997 to 1999. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, I was not seeing the people's court during college, but that's hilarious. Yeah, I didn't right. know that happened. Is there are there any things anything in your, both of your lives where you would have liked to gone to the people's court? No. Oh, to like take <laughs> someone to the people? No, no, no. I, I. What about Emily's friends for not doing <laughs> us? I don't think that's yeah. a civil offense. <laughs> yeah, I would like damages though in the form of many five star reviews and ratings. Okay. Well, since we haven't talked about the actual book in a while, uh, yeah. Esme, do you want to talk about like Buddy learning to read? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and sounds really excited about this prospect. <laughs> You just want to stick with crime court. Yeah. I, I mean, two things jumped out at me about this book. So, the, so the plot is um, that Buddy is having trouble reading his teacher calls. He's like not doing as good a job as, um, you know, he's falling behind in his, from his classmates. He's in the, the crows, the lowest reading group. Um, and uh, his teacher wants Mrs. Barrett to spend more one-on-one quality time with him learning to read aka which I actually... his teacher thinks mrs barrett is a bad mom <laughs> yeah i was like before i go into my stuff emily do you have some some thoughts on some our continuing war on moms particularly single moms or moms that work in stony brook no i just think this is an example of it you know yeah it's a and, it, and we learned that it's a mean man teacher too who's yeah. like not very creative and <laughs> right interesting yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah and i i also i liked you know again more on the emily side i liked that 
Mallory seemed sympathetic to Mrs. Barrett. There wasn't really a judgment from, you know, Mrs. Barrett was like, look, I've got a job and three kids and I have to spend special time with each of them. And I can't also be a reading teacher. Like, I don't know what he wants. Yeah. I think also, in fact, Mal defends Mrs. Barrett in a way, right? There's that moment when she's trying to help Buddy read something, like be interested in the thing that he's reading. And she brings over comic books and he's like, are Mallory's worried for a second that he's not allowed to read them and Mm -hmm. he says you know the teacher thinks we shouldn't read them but my mom has never said anything about it and Mal is Mm -hmm. like great we're gonna go with what your mom said (laughs) like (laughs) screw this Mm -hmm. teacher yeah Um, so I think in that moment she's like defending kind of yeah you know the Miss Barrett's sort of parental authority and her choices that she makes for the kids or whatever yeah so this is an interesting time you know Buddy's eight so I'm assuming he's in third grade and there's a there's a phenomenon in um, literacy research called the second grade split. That that's sort of the that's when you switch from learning to read to reading to learn, and that's where kind of a literacy gap develops between kids. And if you don't stay on track or get back on track in third or fourth grade, it leads to much more difficult educational outcomes down the road. So the fact that this is when Buddy's having a hard time rang true to me Mm -hmm. um, and that he may need a little additional help. And we see Mallory's journey across these tutoring sessions from trying different approaches and what works and what doesn't. And they they actually track pretty well with the literature on this. So Mm -hmm. initially, do you guys, did you guys notice some of your behaviorism that you've learned on this podcast of what, what she tries in her first session? with buddy the the punishment situation yeah well and really really it's more negative reinforcement so she well i think it's punishing i don't think you're wrong because she sets it up to be just like school and he's like yeah i already just got home from school like i don't want to do more school like and also school's not a place where i feel good about myself right now mallory so did you see ann's knowing face just now yeah yeah i'm fucking fucking "Mm -hmm." done with school preach yeah And then um, and then she says, you know, for each word you get, you can have a minute of free time. So I will. She does two things there, which is she. So it's a removal of an aversive. That's negative reinforcement. So I'll make you you get to stop doing the thing you don't want to do. That's the reward. But the problem is that she's using as the aversive the thing she's trying to make a pleasant activity for him. Right. She's trying to get him to learn to like to read. And she's saying, you don't have to read as much if you can read. So it's a little bit of a setup. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's and it's uh, reinforcing to him the idea that reading is not fun and reading is not something he should enjoy. So it doesn't go so great. And then she switches, as you said, to having him read comic books and they write comics and draw their own comics. And then she gets him interested in Encyclopedia Brown and solving the mystery. They read aloud back and forth. They take turns. And so she just works on making it more positively reinforcing, like the actual process of reading itself. And it turns out that works better. And toward the end of the book, he moves from the crows to what's the other bird, the next bird. He's not a hawk. Know. Yeah, the hawk is the, the, the final hawk one. is the highest group. Which, oh, like, robins. Why is there no owl chain. group, though? Seriously. I feel like that's a missed opportunity. Only Mr. Moser is the owl. Ugh. Um. <laughs> I want to be an <laughs> owl. God damn it. Wait, can I do a quick... Uh, remember in uh, Mrs. Schultz's class, mm-hmm. we, we were like that wizards thing? Mm-hmm. And I remember my color was 
I was like the brown group. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was <laughs> and I was really upset about that. I was like, why would you make one of the group colors brown? There's so many <laughs> colors. Anyway, I just had a I've been that's been weighing on me for many years now, and I just had to talk about it. This is in second grade. This is when Anne and I were in second grade. <laughs> now, was that your internalized racism, or was it just that everyone else got a bright color and you wanted a bright color, or both? I just wanted a bright color. Yeah. You know? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. When other people get, like, turquoise and orange, you don't want to be in the brown group when you're seven. No one wants duty brown. <laughs> All right. There's literally one colored marker and it's brown. <laughs> That's for our one crossover Babysitter's Club Wet Hot American Summer fan out there. Yeah. There but it's one crayon and it's brown. Damn there it. are literally hundreds of colored markers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. A plus to Mal. She does a good job helping Buddy. He gets excited. Um, and then he helps solve the mystery because he gets interested in mysteries. So the other, the other, I thought this was a much better mystery than the other mysteries we've read. I yeah, I agree. It was not, I I couldn't guess on page two that it was like Nikki hiding yeah. in the past. We also, you know? we also couldn't explain the plot. So right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little more sophisticated. Yeah. You know, it's a good mystery when three adults can explain it. <laughs> so, um, so that got me thinking about similar when we talked before about like scary stories and horror and stuff. Like, do you guys like mysteries? Is it something that you both like to read or to watch? Not read. No, not really. Yes. I was never really drawn to mysteries. Okay. Emily. Yes. What do you like about mysteries? Em? Uh, I don't know. A puzzle to solve. Mm-hmm. You like a mystery? Mm, yes. <laughs> well, I actually really loved the mystery books as a kid in the Babysitter's mm-hmm. Club universe. I have not read one as a, an adult, and I don't remember much about them, but I read them a lot. Well, we will maybe get to them soon. They start coming out in the 40s. So um, if we're reading them in, in release order like we are with the super specials, we can talk about that. Although, fun fact, 100% of the mysteries ghostwritten. Anna Martin didn't write any of them. Interesting. But we'll see. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not like a huge mystery person, although I do enjoy them occasionally when I read them. So I, you know, again, this is in that category of, you know, not a pressing psychology question about human behavior. So not a lot of not a lot of data about this. Um, but I did find some things talking about developmentally that kids could be really interested in them because they put kids at the center of the story, sort of similar to actually what we were talking about with Robin Benway last week about young adult literature um, and, and kind of teens finding their own way. And that, you know, if you're solving it along with a detective, you're invested in a way that maybe you're not. But I also found this great essay uh, um, from The New Yorker in 1944. I was looking like, why do we like histories? And it was an Edmund Wilson essay. It was a book review where he was reading some popular mysteries of the time where he basically, I don't know, are you guys familiar with Edmund Wilson? Mm -mm. So he's like a famous book critic. He was married to the novelist Mary McCarthy. And he was like a big Freudian and Marxist. He used their ideas a lot in his book analysis and literature. And he's like famous for well, being. Well, if he was writing of, in the 40s, that would have been yeah. probably pretty common. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, as like sort of literary analysis frame. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But he was famous for being kind of curmudgeonly. Like he called Tolkien juvenile trash. Incredible. And like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> He had a lot, like he thought a lot of things were not worth reading. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this essay in the New Yorker, I'll put it in our show notes, is about 
sort of why, um, you know, why do people like mysteries? And he read a few popular ones from the time and he didn't think they were very good. But, you know, he's in the middle of World War II thinking about why are we interested in this? And there's this quote that just to me seems very relevant to our current times as well. He said the world during those years, he's talking about between World War One and World War Two when mysteries really took off. So that's when they became first very commercially popular and the publication of them increased like 500 fold in the mm-hmm. U.S., um, were ridden by an all-pervasive feeling of guilt and by a fear of impending disaster, which it seemed hopeless to try to avert because it never seemed conclusively possible to pin down the responsibility. Who had committed the original crime and who was going to commit the next one? That murder, which always in the novels, occurs at an unexpected moment when the investigation is well underway. Everybody is suspected in turn, and the streets are full of lurking agents whose allegiances we cannot know. Nobody seems guiltless, nobody seems safe. And then suddenly the murderer is spotted and relief. He is not, after all, a person like you or me. He is a villain known to the trade as George Gruesome. And he has been caught by an infallible capital P power, the supercilious and omniscient detective who knows exactly how to fix the guilt. Um, That's interesting. You could totally read some of Freud's civilization and its discontents under there. Um, which I think is like an interesting and it makes sense for the time too, right? If you think of Freud as like a liberal social theorist rather than as a, you know, psychoanalyst, which political theorists read him like that. And he's a very, um, you know, sort of crucial 20th century thinker in that regard. Um, yeah. Oh, he's fine for that. Just don't try yeah, to yeah. treat people's actual mental illness <laughs> with the things. I yeah, love yeah. him as a theorist. Go on. Um, yeah. But, that, but the idea that like the promise of civilization was going to be, you know, this like glossy, happy, easy society where everything, everyone has enough and people are are satisfied is like clearly by the 20th century, not true. Right. And so like, what's, mm-hmm. how, how do we make sense of kind of the simultaneous promise of liberalism and its failure to kind of make good on its terms. And so like mm-hmm. for him, for him, it's like, you know, this, this theory about the kind of repression of the of different dimensions of the hum- of the human right that we have this the the enlightenment comes out of of the enlightenment generates a vision of the human that's a, this like wholly rational kind of individual who makes choices and has needs and has ma- meets those needs and then transcends them mm-hmm. by virtue of cultivating you know the intellect and the, this kind of thing but really we're animals with all these like base urges and so in order to do that it requires repression of all these other dimensions of what it means to be human and so like those things are like intention under civilizational level discourse but also individual level discourse and like this is where the figure of the kind of savage was so crucial for liberal thinkers because it's like the thing that liberals are not right that democracies are not Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know that so i think that that's kind of interesting because right like i think that's a really good translation to what's kind of sexy about novels right it's that like we're or mystery novels right it's that like we're um the the villain right is the villain within us <laughs> who's mm-hmm. who's the villain who's the bad guy like are we are humans really good like these kind of questions that are pressing at both the individual level but also at the civilizational you know societal level too right well yeah. and the outcome being that as he says here that that the villain is not us like we were yeah and then it's like oh no it's not it's definitely that other guy and yeah. recording this you know in the weeks between the siege on the U.S. Capitol and the inauguration of Joe Biden, 
um, this to me seems very much of the moment as well. Like this fundamental attribution error that we make. We've talked about that a little bit before as well. The social psychology research that like for other people, you think when they commit bad acts, it's because of their internal qualities. But if you commit a bad act, it's because of the way the environment influenced you and shaped you to do that. Um, This, you know, those, you know, you can still see, you know, despite thousands of people doing these terrible things, we're trying to, you know, we as a society are grappling with trying to find the villains, trying to find the few bad apples, instead of like that all of these structures are inherently racist and unfair. Um, And that, you know, being shocked that there were police that let some of the terrorists into the Capitol instead of noticing like police are tools of terrorism. And I mean, some of us were not shocked about that, but yeah. Well, no, I'm using the, using the large American, we, not like take, taking part in our own culpability in the system that's asking these questions. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think um, any of us on this were shocked by that, but you know, I think it's just that human that human want to to find a villain and solve it and have it tied up with a bow and that that's satisfying i think can explain a lot of why we're interested in this genre and why it's it is interesting self efficacy cuz i feel like when that kind of stuff comes up in the bsc universe it's a very like pretty cut and dry version of it right like it, it i think it taps into this human tendency but it it makes it neat right like Mm -hmm. there is you know most it's mostly good like these are mistakes or missteps and like no one's really like there's no real bad (laughs) kind of Mm -hmm. happening here and I think that's an interesting sort of transformation from the kind of original iteration of that that tendency Mm -hmm. in in sort of liberal thought and practice like I mean Mm -hmm. if you I, I was I was rereading at the beginning of this year um before the COVID-19 lockdown last year, sorry, at the beginning of 2020, I was like, I'm only going to read books written by dead women this year, but I couldn't keep it up in quarantine. But I did reread Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. which I had read in high school as a teenager. And I was shocked by how incredible it is. I did not have a great memory of sort of exactly what kind of social commentary was, but it was like, oh, the monster is the human, you know, like, Mm -hmm. what? That's like, (laughs) incredible um i think like early liberal thinkers had a better had a better kind of internal critique of that tension in like liberal thought and liberal Mm. practice that like Mm -hmm. no what like this requires careful cultivation and suppression it's not self-evident it's not a a fix-all it's not just this like band-aid that suddenly is going to alleviate all of the world's you know ills it's it's Mm going to create some as well and so like how do we grapple with those um, internal tensions and I think that like in the BSC it's like that there's no there's no internal tensions like we're fine it's this is all good <laughs> Stacy doesn't see color <laughs> the criminals aren't really villains like <laughs> we're good <laughs> yeah that's interesting I'm interested to see where that goes like I, and this is like maybe a silly example but like I wonder going forward, if we ever get to see some of the humanity of Cokie Mason, for instance, like yeah, I see. if she becomes, if she becomes, if she stays sort of a two dimensional villain character, mm-hmm. or if we get acknowledgement that she is also an eighth grade girl living right. in the nineties as you know, as we move forward. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know if it always stays at the surface, but I, you know, I hear you. Yeah, we'll see. So Emily, what other things did you notice? Okay, so there was that weird passage that I was like, what is happening here? I want you guys to help me figure it out. Mallory's like having some success with Buddy and then she's like, hmm, he's looking at me all weird. Does he have a crush on me? I mean, look, when I had a crush on my teacher, I never worked harder and I got all straight A's. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, that was weird. I also (laughs) noted that. Is that like some weird, I don't know. I was like, it's not quite sexist, but it's not not. (laughs) And it made me feel a little, it was a little gross. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm wondering, you know, when you're 11 and 8 and 9 and 10, like if our definition of crush is a little bit different, you know, to to come in as the the gross apologist again, um, <laughs> as as is my want to do. I like I don't know if you if you broaden it a little bit. Right. Like when you have a teacher that you like, don't you work harder when you have a class that you think is well taught and, you know, the person is inspiring or interesting. Um, I think that, you know, working yeah, hard is common. Mal is, like, lacing that with some sexy undertones, man. <laughs> sexy is the word you want to use? You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't read into it that deeply. But <laughs> I I hear you that it's not not sexist. <laughs> it's certainly not not heteronormative. Right. Yeah. But, like, I, I mean, I think... The version of that story that you just told is one that is that doesn't reduce everything between men and women down to its sexual components, right? Which is like yes. not the dominant way of assessing those relationships sort of culturally, right? Um, and especially like in the 90s, right? I'm thinking about like 90s high school mm-hmm comedies <laughs> like yeah. everything's about sexual tension <laughs> right um yeah. anyway i think that probably like the the way you told it would have been how the show would deal with a storyline like that right <laughs> as opposed to the books <laughs> fair enough and you're, you're conspicuously quiet on this on this topic who me and, yeah and had crushes on all of our teachers that's yeah. why no i think i had a crush <laughs> on, on maybe like a college professor but not even a crush. It was just more like, oh, he's like cool, and he's not ugly, and <laughs> yeah, he, te- he teaches me things that are interesting. So great. I had a really hot TA in political science thirteen, Ooh. and and then Emily got a PhD in political <laughs> science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was a political theorist too. Oh man, such well, a babe. See. So, I tried to Google him recently. I couldn't find him. So what you about- agree with Mallory one hundred percent? Yeah. <laughs> No, I never talked in that class because I was too embarrassed about how hot he was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anne. Did Claudia have any snacks in this book? Um, she did, but not not that many. I, mm-hmm. They're pretzels mm-hmm. and and ringdings. Mm. Oh, right. She's mm-hmm. like really into opening the ringding. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking was, of sexual undertones. Yeah, it was like a yeah. little fetish fetishy. Yeah. <laughs> Claudia's got a crush on her candy today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about Tally says? Uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of them. Still, still, we're sick. We're, we've we've abandoned exotic. We're sticking with almond shaped. 
Uh, Christy's still bossy. Couple of sophisticated. Uh, we've we've been leaving shy behind for Marianne and veering more to sensitive. Mm. So sensitive is catching up with shy. It's not there yet, but um, you know, shy is at shy is at thirty two, and sensitive is at nineteen. But the last three books have not mentioned shy. Um, and then you know, you're an individual and you love health food. It's still there. Sure do. Yep. See, it's my turn to talk. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> So what about favorite lines? Should I just go? Sure. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have a there were um there weren't any that really stood out to me, but I had one that I just thought was cute. Uh-huh. Which is when Buddy is making up a story and he calls the characters Bubba, Sally, and Marie. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was cute. Yeah. I like that one. That's good. One of mine is also a buddy quote. Which is when they're looking for the the painting, finally at the end, and um, he's a little bit sarcastic. Um, <laughs> Mallory finds the painting, and it's a painting of ships painted by. We didn't talk about this an itinerant painter. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> like comes through town. Like a vagrant, like <laughs> yeah. town crier who's also a painter. Like what yeah. the fuck? I was like. I so strange. So okay. Not a very good painting of ships, whereas the portrait underneath is very high class and well done. Um, and Mallory says, I think this is the portrait of Sophie's mother. And it goes, Oh, right, scoffed buddy, ships. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> Oh, right, ships was pretty funny. That's very good. Um, I didn't write down what page it's on, but when Christy answers the phone, that's my and other she one. Says- <laughs> What does she say? Children are our business. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Hello, Babysitter's Club. Children are our business. Yes. That's on page 139. That was my second one. Psycho. All right. Which one are we going with? Um, I don't know. What are you thinking? I would prefer to go with a shorter line so it fits nicely on the Instagram post. Great. <laughs> so, All right, so, oh, right. Ships. Yeah. Or Bubba Sally Marie. I feel like, I guess... I mean, both are relevant to to the book. Well, I think yeah, it's, just, it's just a matter of do we want our title to be reflective of the 1894 timeline or of the 1989 yeah. timeline? <laughs> I think let's chicken. let's hang in in 1894. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's a good call. Okay. Okay. What should we pizza toast to? Well, I have one thing that didn't come up that I know you're not going to want to pizza toast to, Emily, but I'm just going to mention it to to bother you because it didn't oh, come up last week either. So sweet. Yeah. Well, that that Stacy in last week's episode in Welcome Back, Stacy refers to Logan as one of the nicest people I know. And then this week, uh, Mallory says Logan is italics really nice. So I just feel like. AMM's laying the groundwork to to rehab Logan, rehab Logan a little bit. So I thought it was interesting, but we don't have to pizza toast to it. I just we are certainly it. not pizza toasting. Also, that. I will say that the adjective "nice" to describe someone, I know, perhaps is mean. Is is like default of like when the person is boring and has you have nothing else to say. About Thank them. you so much for saying that. I've been defending that argument for years. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? It's not fucked up to call someone nice. And I'm like, yes, it is. That's the word you use when you can't think of anything better to yep. say about them. Exactly. I would be I would be mortified if somebody was like, oh, Emily's nice. What? Yeah. It'd be like, I'm I'm Emily Crandall. I'm nice. And I like health food. <laughs> 
No, you're just nice. You don't get a second clause. <laughs> I'm Logan Bruno. I'm really nice. It'd be, I, I'm really nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, what should we feed the toast to? <laughs> hmm. People's Court? The People's Court theme song could be an option. It's really oh, good. We could be cheesy and pizza toast to um, learning to love reading. Oh, yeah. That is, Mallory has that really nice ode to reading and like mm-hmm. how much like joy it can bring into your life. Um, and yeah, I sort of like, I, I like that. We haven't done okay. a cheesy one in Let's a little do while. It. Okay. And a pizza toast to loving to read. To loving to read. To loving to read. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.